We are going to read from God's word together due to a typo that I have full responsibility for. The, the passage in your bulletin is not the exact passage we're going to read. It's going to be up on the screen, but if you'd like a Bible to follow along and you don't have your own, just put up your hand right now and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. We have Bibles at the back that we can use. So if, you, if someone puts up their hand, the ushers will bring you a Bible and uh, otherwise you can uh, read your own. We're going to be reading from the English Standard Version or um, following along on the screen. And so let's read. Let's read God's word together from Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. I'll invite you to read with me. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And then he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine, sorry, I guess that's not here, I'll finish reading, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word. You may be seated. There will be no typos or technological glitches in the new creation, and I'm looking forward to that. Let's pray together. Lord, we have been singing so much truth this morning. We have already heard so much 
enough for our souls to feast on. Now, Lord, here's your word open before us. Father, we know that your word is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and that we stand exposed before it. So Lord, I pray that your work would do its, your word would do its work in our hearts this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. That you, Lord, would take your truth and bring it to bear on our souls in a way that we can't escape from, we can't deny, and we can't remain the same after. Holy Spirit, move among us now, I pray, through the power of your living word for the glory of Jesus Christ. Empower us now, I pray. Amen. This morning is a, is a significant morning for a number of reasons. It is Palm Sunday, the Sunday that um, we remember the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. We've already touched on it being the last weekend with, with the NBC students for this particular school year. And for, for many of you, this will be our last Sunday with you ever until you come back to visit, which of course you will. Today's also the conclusion to a journey that we began back in September, a sermon series that has taken us from one end of the Bible to the other. And in this series, we've been exploring how the Bible is one story how Jesus Christ is the main character of that story and how you and I are a part of that story today. And what we're going to do in the first part of our message this morning is go back and, and do a survey of where we've been this year. Some of that is for the benefit of you who have been here for this. Some of this is for the benefit of those who are hearing this for the first time to give a bit of a preview of what we've done together as a, as a church family this year. So we're going to survey this series, and then we're going to end with Luke 19, uh, which we just read, and a, and a final reminder about why all of this matters. So let's begin by going back to where we began in September, which is where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. Before there was time, there was a Father, and there was the Son, and there was the Holy Spirit, existing in perfect fellowship and love and the story of creation and of the fall and of redemption and restoration, it was written before any of this actually began. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That first week, we also considered the purpose and the plan of redemption, which is that we would become partakers of the love and the fellowship of the Trinity itself. There's a, a glimpse of this, this mind-boggling truth in John 17 when Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, might be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Before there was time, the Father chose us and gave us to the Son so that we would be brought to the Son where he is and be enabled to love the Son with the very same love that the Father has had for him for all of eternity. It's almost unbelievable, but it's true. And it was all planned out before the beginning. And then there was a beginning. Then the plan was put into motion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. God created everything for his glory. And he made Adam and Eve in his image to reflect his glory and to represent him here on the earth. And we saw how Adam and Eve were given work to do. They were given a mission to fulfill. To fill the earth, subdue it, and to have dominion, to reign over the earth as God's representatives. But they rebelled. They were seduced by the snake. They committed treason against their maker. And in response to their sin, God cursed the earth. He brought the whole creation crashing down around them. And we saw how this was to be a physical display of the horror of their own sin, of our own sin. As we see pain and suffering and death all around us, that is just a display of the evil inside each one of our own hearts. And from Genesis 3 on, from the fall on, the world has been broken. And in its brokenness, we see ourselves. And yet in the midst of these words of, of curse that God spoke to them in Genesis 3, he also spoke hope. God promised that an offspring of the woman would come. And that the serpent was going to bruise his heel. But in that very act, the heel was going to come down on the head of the serpent and crush him and finish him forever. And so from that point on, people were looking for a savior. A man named Noah was born. And when he was born, his father said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you see the expectation? Maybe Noah is the promised one, the one that we've been looking for. And, and Noah certainly did save humanity from extinction. God did make a covenant with him. But Noah and his family, they, they, they very quickly proved that not even a fresh start of the flood, not even wiping everything off and starting over could fix the stain of sin on the human heart. And so Noah really served to help us see more clearly what kind of a savior we actually need. And so God began a new work of redemption through a man called Abraham making a covenant with him, promising that through, through Abraham, formerly Abram, one of his offspring, there's that, you catch that word again, offspring, one of his offspring would be a, a blessing, would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that promise began to take shape when Abraham's descendants became a nation and, and God raised up Moses to rescue that nation from Egypt and bring them to himself at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God made a special covenant with them. There's that word again, that word covenant. And God promised to dwell with them. God promised to bless them. God promised to make them a nation of royal priests for the sake of all the other nations. But time and time again, Israel failed in their calling. They broke the covenant and they experienced God's covenant curses far more often than his blessings. And so God raised up a faithful king to lead them. And God made another covenant with this King David, promising to raise up one of his offspring, there's that word again, who would reign forever. At first it seemed like Solomon might be that promised king. But once again, just like with Noah, 
Solomon disappoints us. Solomon quickly turns after other gods. And Israel's golden age comes to a really quick end as Israel begins their downward slide into exile. Finally, after centuries, mere centuries, just like Adam and Eve, just like Adam and Eve, God's people were sent away from his presence and away from their land into the darkness of exile. And even though Israel was able to come back to their land after 70 years, what we saw is th- th- that week that we studied this is that the exile never really ended. People rebuilt the temple and God's glory did not come and fill it the way that it had the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. And that was just a sign that was borne out in the coming years is that even though the people were within their own land, they were still in exile. They were still in slavery to sin. They were still waiting for the promised one to come and deliver them. Then one night in David's town, one of David's descendants had a baby. And in the fields nearby, angel armies showed up to a group of shepherds to tell them that it had finally happened. He had finally come. Jesus, the one whom they had been waiting for from the very beginning, had come. And this Jesus is the main character of the story and the one whom it had always been about from the very beginning. Jesus is the last Adam, the father of a new humanity. Jesus is God's true representative, God's perfect image. Jesus is the one who succeeded every place that Adam failed. Jesus is the one who gives us his perfect record of righteousness in place of Adam's record of guilt. Jesus is the offspring of Eve, promised to come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the stronger man, as he described himself, who had tied up Satan and was in the act of plundering his house. And in his death on the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory over the devil. The devil. Jesus robbed him of his grounds for accusation, right? He paid for all of the sin that Satan used to accuse us. And Jesus took away the judgment of death that Satan used to enslave us in fear. And so Jesus has crushed and will crush the head of the serpent, just like God promised. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the one who brings blessing to all the nations. And he did that by dying to redeem, to ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and to make them a kingdom and priests to God. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. Jesus replaces the old priesthood. Jesus represents us before God. And Jesus is the one who is the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself on the cross to satisfy God's justice and to pay for all of our sins once and for all. Jesus is the son of David who reigns as king forever, just like God said. Jesus is the one who right now is enthroned at the right hand of God on high, just like Psalm 110 told, just like Acts 2, 33 to 35 told. Jesus is our true temple. God become flesh, tabernacling among us. And today we approach God here, right here in Nippon. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a building, a temple. We approach God through a person, a living person, Jesus Christ, who has replaced the temple as the meeting place between God and man. 
And finally, Jesus is the one that Daniel foresaw. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge humanity. Jesus is the one who will give eternal life to those who are counted righteous in him. Jesus is the one who is going to bring the fullness of the kingdom and usher in the age to come. And so that's the story. And when we arrange it like that, we can see how from first to last, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation, Jesus is the main character of this story. Just like Jesus said to his disciples after he raised from the dead, it's all about him. It's always been about him. And it's all for his glory. So that's the first two major sections that we looked at in the sermon series this year is that the Bible is one story and Jesus is the main character of that story. But there's a third crucial element that we explored in this series, which is that we are a part of this story today. We are in the story. Now the story is not about us. That's one of the most important things we can learn from this. We're not the star of the show. Jesus is. We're the supporting cast. But we are a part of the story, and we do have an important part to play. And in order to understand what our role is, we need to understand where we are in the story. And so that's what we've considered in these last three months, that we are here in between the first and the second comings of Christ. So much changed with the first coming of Christ, and yet so much is still waiting to change when he comes again. When Jesus came for the first time, he, Jesus brought the kingdom of God. Jesus has made us citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here, and yet there's another sense in which it's not yet here. The kingdoms of this world have not yet bowed their knee to Jesus. They still are rolling on in rebellion. Jesus is still waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. The new creation began the day that Jesus walked out of the, his grave. He is the first fruits of the new creation. And through the Holy Spirit, you, if you have trusted in Christ, have been born again and have become new creations in Christ. That's the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. You are a part of that future world already today. And yet, our bodies are still a part of this decaying old creation, still subjected to futility, still waiting to be redeemed. One more tension here we see is that through the blood of Jesus, if you've trusted in him and he's your savior, you are a part of the new covenant. And this new covenant has changed so much in, in terms of how we relate to God, right? There's no temple, the sacrifice, this, the, his once for all sacrifice has replaced all of that. So much has changed in the new covenant. And yet God himself has not changed and so the Old Covenant scriptures, even those scriptures that describe the temple and the sacrificial system, they still have relevance for our lives today. And so we see in these three ways, and there's more that we could elaborate, that, that, that at our place in the story, we occupy a space of, of, of tensions, of alreadys and not yets, where some things have changed, some things wait to change. It's true and it's not true and when we recognize this, when we, when we see where we are in the story, rather than confusing us, it actually brings a whole lot of clarity to the Christian life. It brings a whole lot of clarity to how we read the Bible. It brings a whole lot of clarity to how we understand what God expects from us today. 
And so that's what we did in the last three months here, beginning in January. We explored 12 different aspects of the Christian life, things that we should all be familiar with if, if, if we've read the Bible and, and understand a little bit of the Christian life. And yet we saw how the big story of the Bible brings clarity to these aspects of the Christian life and helps us understand our own personal stories. So we began by considering our role as the new covenant people of God, children of Abraham by faith in Christ, inheritors of the promises. Next was work, just like Adam and Eve were given work to do. So we in the new covenant have been called to give ourselves to good works. And that might include our nine to five, but it's, it's a lot more than just our jobs. We looked at our relationship with money and possessions. We saw this has changed from the old covenant, right? Where God promised financial prosperity as a, as a blessing for obedience. And now in the new covenant, Christ has commanded us not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. We looked at marriage, which we now understand to be a, a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And in the new creation, when we experience the, the fullness of our relationship with Christ, we're not going to need human marriage anymore. That's why Jesus said it's not going to be a part of our experience there. You don't need the baseball card when you're at the baseball game. And here today, while marriage is still a good thing for many of God's people, we discovered as we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 7, one of the most ignored and neglected portions of the New Testament, we discovered that marriage is no longer necessary the way that it was in the Old Covenant. Single people like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, can be spiritual fathers to many. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us singleness is no longer a problem to be fixed, but for many it is a gift to be invested. Next, we consider our family relationships, how Jesus challenges us to love and to honor him more than all of our other natural relationships. And so in the old covenant, it could be said that family is everything, but that's no longer true for us in the same way at our spot in the story. We looked at our relationship with the law, the law of Moses, and how we've been set free from the law of Moses through the death of Christ. But our freedom from the law is not a freedom to sin. Rather, we are to pursue holiness and pursue love and pursue the righteous requirement of the law as we put our sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Next, we considered the themes of suffering and healing. And we saw how here at our spot in the new covenant, God does not guarantee us a pain-free life. We should expect to suffer, but our suffering is hopeful suffering. It is the suffering of a woman in labor. It's maternity room suffering because we know that our pain is leading to new life. Next was spiritual warfare. We saw that spiritual warfare is not some little tiny corner of the Christian life. It is the Christian life because from Genesis 3 onwards, the Bible is a story about a war between the offspring of Eve and the serpent. And Ephesians 6 confirms this for us by describing the armor of God in terms of the basic equipment of the Christian life. Then we looked at prayer. Prayer began in Genesis 4 as people called upon the name of the Lord, asking him, as we see implied there, to send the serpent crusher. They were asking for Jesus to come, even though they didn't realize it. 
And the last prayer in the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, come Lord Jesus. From first to last, prayer in the Bible is people calling on God to do what he promised, to fulfill his promises, to send Jesus. And so we looked at the Lord's Prayer and saw how Jesus teaches us to ask God to fulfill his purposes and keep his promises. Then we focused on our mission, revealed in the Great Commission as a command to go and make disciples of all nations. And we saw how those, those words, that, that, that phrase there, all nations, is a deliberate echo of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. And so this is our number one job at this spot in the story, at our place in the story. We must go to the tribes and languages and peoples and nations who have not yet heard the good news of Jesus. Those songs we sang there this morning, fill the earth with songs of worship. May the peoples praise you. Those aren't just nice religious phrases. Those are our marching orders. That's why we're here at our spot in the story is to make Christ known to those peoples and languages and tribes and nations who have not yet heard of him. And it's only once we've completed this work of proclaiming the gospel to all nations that Jesus will return like he promised. Because Jesus is going to return. Last week, we looked at the new creation. Jesus is going to come. He's going to reign on the earth just like he promised. And we saw how the Bible concludes with this glorious vision of the new creation, where we're going to be resurrected bodily, new bodies. And we will dwell with God. And we will reign with him over the new earth, just like he intended from the very beginning. So take a deep breath. For many of you, what we just did is review, reminded you of things you've heard. For some of you, that's the first time you've heard all of that all together like that. And it may feel like you just had a fire hose put in your mouth. If you want to explore any of any of this more for yourself, I'd encourage you to check out our website, ebcnippowin.ca. You can listen to or read any of these messages or the blog posts that, that went along with them. If there's anything that you want to follow up on more yourself. But this morning, we're going to conclude this series. There's going to be a bit of a follow-up next week with Resurrection Sunday. But as I thought today, how, 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 do, we, how do we wrap this up? How do, we, how do we finish this? It didn't take long for me to go to Luke chapter 19 in the parable that we read together earlier. Jesus told this parable to warn people that the fullness of the kingdom was not going to arrive on the timeline that they were expecting. We see that there in verse 11. They're on their way to Jerusalem, right? Palm Sunday is about to happen. And they think everything's going to go down all at once. The kingdom, new creation, the age to come, boom, it's all going to happen all at once. And Jesus uses this parable to tell them it's not going to happen in the way that they expected. He was going to go away for a season to receive a kingdom. And in this parable, he tells them what to do as they wait for his return. And so this parable is a perfect place for us to conclude this series. Because this is what our Lord wants us to know. And this is what our Lord wants us to do at our spot in the story as we wait for him to return like he promised. Now, there's so much in this parable, obviously, that we're not going to be able to 
to fully explore this morning. So we're going to just kind of jump right into considering what these different elements in the parable might represent and what they might mean for us. So it's clear that this nobleman in the parable, he represents Jesus. His servants represent us, his followers. And he calls them and he gives them each a mina. A mina was a unit of money. It was about three months wages for a laborer. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough. And giving them this was, was, was an act of trust, right? You could go spend it on yourself. Or they could obey and do what he said, which is manage it for him, engage in business until he comes. So what do these minas represent for, for you and for me? See, there's another version of this parable. It's, 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 it's different, but, but some elements are the same. Jesus gave it at a later point. And, and in that parable, it's recorded in Matthew 25, the word for what he gives his followers is talents, right? The parable of the talents is what we might be more familiar with. And so that's often caused people to assume that what he gives his servants are abilities, like the kinds of things you would do at a talent show, right? But, but a talent, like Amina, was just a unit of money. And so they simply represent resources, things that come from God that we get to invest for his sake. So what are, what are the resources that God has given you to invest for his sake? It, it might include your abilities. Are, are you good at something? That's a gift. And it came from God. And you should use it for him. But it can be broader than that. The resources God has given you just think of what they all might be. It might be the fact that you live in the country you live in. You have access to the opportunities you have access to. You have time. You have abilities. You have opportunities. You have relationships. Maybe even actual money, actual resources. Anything that God has given you that you can use and should use for him. Bible college students, some of the resources God has given you is your year or two or three at Bible school. That's now something you have that you can use for yourself. You can not use it all, or you can use for your king. So the nobleman gives resources to his servants, and then he goes away. That's where we are in the story right now. He's gone away, and he's going to come back. He returns in the parable, and that's the part that we look forward to, the return of Christ, when he comes back like he promised and when the nobleman returns, what does he do in the parable? He calls his servants together and he takes an account of what they've done with what he gave them. It's not just a free gift and go do whatever you want. You come into heaven and it's don't ask, don't tell. No, no, that's the, there will be an accounting of what he entrusted us with. There shouldn't be a new idea to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Sorry, let me back up a little bit. We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul includes himself in that. Paul expected to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account so if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, this is not a judgment for your sin. 
This is not a judgment to see whether or not you get access to heaven or to the new earth, but it is an accounting of what you have done with what God has given you. We will give an account, and this account will have genuine consequences for us. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. The first servant comes. And he's made a thousand percent ROI, return on investment. I don't know too much about investing, but I know that's pretty good. And what does the master say to him? Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. It's Luke 19. 17. Now this one verse, verse 17, tells us three important truths that we need to look at here this morning. First, the faithful servant gets a reward. He's rewarded. And this reminds us that God is going to reward Christians for their faithful service to him. I remember the first time I heard this truth, that that we're actually going to be rewarded beyond just sneaking into heaven. We're actually going to be or potentially be rewarded for what we did for Jesus in this life. And I just, I didn't like it when I first heard it. I didn't like it at all. But then I read the Bible more carefully and I realized that this is everywhere. This is all over the pages of scripture. Jesus talked about this all the time. But when you give to the needy, he said, Matthew 6, 3 to 4, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Luke 14, 13 to 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Over and over and over again, Jesus tells us God is going to reward us for his faithfulness and he tells us to seek that reward. We should be thinking about that reward when it comes down to who we invite over for Thanksgiving or maybe Easter next weekend. The second thing that we need to see from verse 17 is that there are different levels of reward for different levels of fruitfulness. And if we compare that with later on what we see about the servant who had a 500% return on investment, he was set over five cities. 1,000% return on investment, set over 10 cities. Our reward will be in proportion to our fruitfulness. More on that in a minute. But there's a third truth that we need to see here. What's the reward for fruitfulness? More responsibility. The servant who earned 10 minas, he wasn't given 100 minas and told to go on a shopping spree. His reward was authority over 10 cities. So we see here that these 10 minas that, that that the nobleman gave him, they were a test of his abilities And now that he had proven his abilities, he is rewarded with a position of real responsibility in the nobleman's kingdom. Now, what might that mean for us? Well, we just need to remember what we looked at last week 
If you remember that eternity is not going to be an endless family reunion floating around a castle in the clouds. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation 22.5 says that on that new earth, his servants will do what forever and ever? Reign. It's another one of those ideas. The first time you see it, it's like, really? But it's all over the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Or like Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the earth? Don't you know this? He asks to these relatively new Christians. This is such a part of what they were taught. We're going to be a part of the cabinet of King Jesus reigning over the new earth. It's true. That's what's ahead of us. And the parable here of the minas and similarly the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 tells us that our position within the government of King Jesus, the amount of authority that we have in that kingdom depends on how fruitful we are with what he has given us today. The master has entrusted you with resources and what you do with them is telling Jesus what kind of responsibility he can trust you with when the kingdom comes. You know what this is saying? It's saying that your life today is an internship for the kingdom of God. Right now, whether you know it or not, you are enrolled in an internship for eternity. So your life matters. What you do matters. Your decisions, your habits matter. What you do with what Jesus has given you matters for all of eternity. Because right now you're telling Jesus what he can trust you with when it comes time to establish his government in the new earth. So yeah, we're a part of this story. Yeah, we have a part to play. Yeah, we will have a part to play. And we are deciding today what part we will play tomorrow. So connect this truth with some of the topics that we've covered in the last three months. Think about what we've heard about the priority of good works, loving and serving each other in the body of Christ. Think about the radical countercultural truths we've heard about money or marriage or family. Think about the summons to mission, the challenge that... Many of us, we need a good reason not to go to the unreached peoples of the world. And I know how easy it is in our culture and with so much comfort around us to just slough these things off and say, good sermon, pastor, and go home and forget about it all. But do you want a reason to take these things seriously? Do you want some motivation to not shrug them off, but to actually get to work being fruitful for King Jesus? You've got it right here in Luke 13. You're in an internship right now. You're being tested right now. You're going to give an account for what you do with what you've been given right now, even how you're responding to this sermon this morning. You're telling Jesus what he can trust you with in the age to come. Isn't that powerfully motivating? Doesn't that make our excuses sound as weak as they actually are? Doesn't this make the story feel as real as it actually is? Doesn't this make actually doing something like moving across the world to reach an unreached people, doesn't this make that seem like less of a big deal and more just the kind of thing you do when you realize that you're in an internship for eternity? 
Doesn't this make you want to crumple up your bucket list and throw it in the trash and say instead with Paul, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's all I care about. And that scripture that I just read from Acts 20, 24 points us to our very final stop this morning because we have to close the loop and we have to remind ourselves why all of this really matters. Why even do these ideas of an internship, why even do these ideas of eternal reward, why do they matter? They matter because Jesus matters. Being a faithful steward of your resources matters because those resources came from Jesus. Reigning with Jesus matters because it's reigning with Jesus and he died to make us a kingdom of priests to reign with him in the first place. It's the price of blood over all of this. Your life matters because Jesus matters and Jesus is worthy of all of your faithfulness, all of your obedience, all of your sacrifice, all of your worship. And so that's where we're going to end this morning. The worthiness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to end this morning by singing a song together about the worthiness of Jesus, a song that comes from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 paints a picture of the throne room of heaven and God the Father is holding a scroll that contains his, his purposes for history. Some people identify this as the title deed for planet earth. And someone needs to open it, but nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to do so. And then we read in chapter 5, and as I'm reading here, team, music team, come on up and take your spots. As we read in Verse 5 of Revelation 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as this chapter goes on, the heavenly choir celebrates the worthiness of this lion and this lamb, Jesus Christ. They sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and all of heaven worships transfixed on the worthiness of Jesus Christ and we're going to join them this morning as we conclude our service and as we conclude our series with these words about the worthiness of Jesus. And as we sing, I want to call each one of you in this room, whether you are finishing up a year at Bible school, whether you are graduating, whether you come here every single Sunday or not, make your life count because Jesus is worthy. Let's sing. Jesus, we have nothing to add to that except our lives. So Holy Spirit, send us out from here with the worth of Jesus Christ burned into our souls. And may we fear nothing except wasting our lives. May no cost seem too great for the Lamb who was slain.
May no path seem too hard to walk. May no future seem too impossible. Prove, O God, the worthiness of your Son by the faithful obedience and sacrifice of your people here this morning. And I ask this for the glory of Jesus, now and forever. Amen. May God bless you as you go from here.